I want to talk to you this morning about the Samaritan converts. And so if you uh, would open your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. Just quickly by way of reminder, uh, we are in this lengthy study of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit? Uh, what does the Holy Spirit do? And we've been studying that since, uh, as Alan wonderfully reminded me, since the beginning of the year. And uh, we've reached the point where we're addressing the, the doctrine, if you will, or the, the phenomenon uh, known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's imperative because there are, are, are different views of what that is. How does one get it? What does it do? And so it's imperative, I think, for us, because it is so critical to the Christian life and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, uh, that we understand it, that we understand the what, the when, the why, and the how of this issue called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in order to better understand that, uh, just quickly by way of reminder, we've been studying baptism itself and what is baptism. Because without a, a good, solid understanding of baptism, uh, and more particularly baptism as an initiation and a one-stage initiation into the church, uh, we're not going to fully understand and grasp what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And so with that, just a quick reminder, we said that baptism is uh, the once-for-all expression. That's important. Once-for-all. How many times do we get baptized? One time. It's a once-for-all expression, and it's an all-encompassing expression of what the Bible says has happened to us, the fact that we have become children of God, the fact that we have been regenerated spiritually, we're made new creations, the fact that we are justified, uh, the fact that we are, uh, have re- I should say, have received the Holy Spirit, and it's, it's the Holy Spirit who is the one who is able and the only one who is able to make us these new creations. So our baptism, if you think about it, our baptism is really the testimony, officially if you will, and, and given to us by the scriptures, that we make this statement that all of this is true of me. When I'm born again, all of this is true. When I become a Christian. And it's also inclusive of repentance and faith. So baptism is significant, understand. But the, the bottom line is you come away from it realizing that baptism is a one-time initiation. All, of these things, all these things happen one time. You receive the Holy Spirit. How many times? One time. You're justified when? How many times? One time. You're born again. How many times? One time. So baptism is this one-time public testimony ceremony uh, identifying all those things. and it's, I th- Would you agree with me that it's imperative that Christians understand what baptism is about? It's worth celebrating, isn't it? And yet there are many, many Christians who yet remain unbaptized or, uh, or don't fully understand. Now, if, the, if it's true that we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, when we're born again, that's when we receive the Holy Spirit, then how are we to understand uh, that some kind of second experience, often described as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
has happened to many people after their conversion is apparently leading to a, a more full Christian life, a more joyful Christian life, more power to live the Christian life, more power for ministry. You hear these testimonies again and again and again, and people, it's just like, it's just like they've wakened from a slumber. It's just like uh, they've, they've received this new experience. And it seems to be always um, after their conversion rather than uh, consequent, or I should say uh, contemporaneous with their conversion. And you know basically what I'm talking about. Now, that's a two-stage event. I get saved, and then sometime later on, I get baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's classically how uh, it's taught. Now, that view comes from, it's derived from the book of Acts. And it's derived from just a few passages, and we're going to look at at the third of those passages this morning. Last time, we looked at uh, the Apostle Paul and his conversion and uh, that experience, uh, remember, he, he meets the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Prior to that, he's a persecutor of the church. He is zealous for the laws, zealous for the purity of Judaism. And, and these people now are, are um, heretics, so he he's, wants to see them in prison, killed, and so forth. And so on his way to Damascus, he's met by the risen Lord Jesus and uh, struck blind, and it's a three-day period when Ananias comes to him and Ananias lays his hands on him, prays for him, he receives his sight and he gets baptized and, and receives the Holy Spirit. So when you look at, at, at those passages and, and that testimony or that experience is recounted three times. We read them last time. In the ninth chapter of Acts is the initial experience. Luke records that. Over in chapter 22 of the book of Acts, uh, Luke records Paul's testimony of his experience before the Jews when he's arrested in Jerusalem. And then the third time, uh, at his trial before King Agrippa, he rec- he, Luke records Paul's recitation of his testimony there. And what I suggested to you was that Luke is not so much concerned in, in recording those events to develop a, a definitive doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Luke is more concerned just to paint a picture and convey the growth of the church and the events that contributed to the move of God's Spirit in the life of the church. If we want to know a definitive doctrine and study and understanding of these things, then we should go, I think, to the Apostle Paul and see what he has to say. After all, he's writing to all the churches, correcting all the churches in terms of doctrine and their understanding of right doctrine. So the, the question is, there's, there seems to be this delay. There seems to be this second experience in Paul's life. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So here he, he apparently gets converted, and then three days later, he receives the Holy Spirit. So the question is, is that normative? Is that the thing that, that we all look to and say, oh, okay, so I should expect a second experience? Then we looked over at the Ephesians in uh, the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, and, and Luke records there that Paul was coming through uh, Ephesus, and he met some disciples, indefinite. We don't know who they were, whose disciples they were. There was just some disciples, and we learned that they were actually John the Baptist's disciples. And uh, Paul, in, in interviewing them, 
at least initially believed that they were probably believers, but then quickly discovered that he was wrong. They weren't believers because he asks them a question. What question did he ask them? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The assumption is from Paul's perspective, because that question comes from him, is that when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. So he, he must have sensed the, these people aren't necessarily believers. So he preaches to them. He preaches Jesus and tells them they must be baptized in the name of Jesus. They must believe in him. And so then he prays for them and put, lays his hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit and are baptized in the name of Jesus. So again, you look at the passage, and there seems to be a gap. The gap presumes that they were Christians in the first place, and as I said last week, I don't believe that they were. And so they do become Christians and receive the Holy Spirit at the same time when Paul prays on them. Does that make sense? So again, these passages in the book of Acts are picked out, and what, is, what seems to be common to all of them, if you follow this line of interpretation, is that there's a gap. So that becomes normative. Now let's, see, let's look at the Samaritans. And let's see uh, about the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. We'll just read the first 17 verses together, so follow along with me. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Now, that's a reference to, to uh, the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And uh, Saul oversaw this uh, tragic event, and he's giving uh, hearty approval to Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Jesus, prior to his ascension into heaven, he had given his disciples a command. What was the command? Do you remember? Go. <laughs> Go. And, and they're, to, they're to preach the gospel, to make disciples. And he says, start here in Jerusalem, then go to where? Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost or the ends of the earth. So they were to get out of Jerusalem. But you know, Jerusalem is a very comfortable place. It's, we have our comfort zone, don't we? We don't want to, don't make me go. But God has his way of making his disciples go, doesn't he? In this particular instance, he uses this dynamic of persecution. They are chased out of Jerusalem because that's is, this is what they're, they're to go to be salt, salt and light in the world. And so uh, Luke records that they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. And, and that word destroy, it, it conveys the, the idea of um, with a violence uh, just like a wild animal who's just attacking the church viciously. Began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. Those who had been scattered, kind of like seed, you know, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Don't you love that? There was great joy in that city. The kingdom of God had broken in. 
The kingdom of God had come upon that city, and there was great joy. Should there be great joy when the kingdom of God comes into our life? Absolutely. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery, or literally magic, in the city, and he amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, uh, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They had a, people had a wrong view of who God was, and so they're looking to this fight. And, and what were they focused on? What were the people focused on? The sign, the things that he could do. Okay, They would automatically say, well, he has this great power, and he is the great power. Now notice, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, what was Simon focused on? Yeah, he was focused on the the magic as he saw it, the signs and the miracles. That's what he was focused on. Now we come to the, to, the, to the key passage in verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So here's the setting. Philip goes to Samaria. He preaches to the Samaritans. Multitudes respond. Evil spirits are cast out. Paralytics and the crippled, we're told, were healed. There was great joy in that city. Luke tells that even Simon the sorcerer, who had set himself up as a great power from God, uh, but now he sees himself as being outdone and that he himself believed and was baptized. And after being baptized, he follows Philip wherever he goes, and astonished again by the great signs and wonders that he saw Philip doing. At this point, Peter and John uh, come up from Jerusalem to see what's going on. And Luke says that they prayed that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, verse 16. They'd simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, you see this apparent delay. You see this apparent interval that we spoke of earlier. They'd been baptized in the name of Jesus. They believed Philip's preaching, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. The question is, why the delay? Is this normative as the other two uh, examples Now, the Pentecostal answer to this and the answer of many Catholics is the same. The Samaritan believers needed the laying on of the apostles' hands in confirmation to make them full members of the church. That would be the Catholic view. And if you grew up Catholic like I did, you knew that you were baptized as an infant, uh, but to make you a full member of the church you need it also to be confirmed, and that could only happen at the hands of the bishop uh, when you reached, uh, presumably, the age of reason. That's the, that's the thought behind it. Now, that whole, that whole theology, that whole practice is 
attributed to and, 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 and comes from their interpretation of the book of Acts and these passages where you see Peter and John, apostles, coming and laying their hands on the Samaritans. So the laying of the hands is absolutely imperative if they're to receive the Holy Spirit. That's the thinking. And from the Pentecostal perspective, the same thing is true. The laying on of hands is imperative. It is a post-salvation event. When the apostles uh, lay their hands on you, then you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we're part of a Pentecostal denomination, and that's typically what uh, is believed in our denomination. I'm going to um, veer away from that a little bit. So if some of you disagree, that's fine. But this is what I believe, and I'm the pastor, so I get to teach it. <laughs> now, this is important. Quite apart from the mutually contradictory theologies built by the Catholics and the Pentecostals on this particular passage. I want to point out to you, in fact, I, I, it's, it's, it's very, very important to point out to you, I think, uh, that nowhere else in the New Testament is the laying on of hands seen as the decisive act in Christian initiation. But this is where these passages lead to. This is how when, when, when people read them and study them, they say, oh, see, the laying on is critical. And I'm going to suggest you, you find that no place else in the New Testament. That's not taught. In fact, you, we know that the laying on of hands is a significant thing throughout the Scripture. You see it in the Old Testament. You see the hands were laid on the, on the priest. You see that, that uh, uh, if you were a sinner and you were going to offer a sacrifice, uh, that, that hand, you laid hands on, on an animal to in, in symbolically transfer your guilt. That animal would die in your place. We see laying on of hands in a number of, of different ways uh, throughout the Old and New Testament. But I want to suggest to you that nowhere is it seen as the decisive act in Christian initiation. So, what are we to make of this? Uh, well, again, you look in the New Testament, and I want to suggest that uh, nobody laid hands on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. They received the Holy Spirit, right? They waited in the upper room, just as Jesus had said, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. So no one laid hands on them uh, to confirm them or to equip them with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just came up, they waited, and there was the Holy Spirit. No one laid hands on Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, verse 44, or his household. These are the Gentiles. And in fact, the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his family, his household, while Peter was still preaching. Peter was given to be a little long-winded, and the Holy Spirit just didn't want to wait, so he just came on him while he was still preaching. No one laid hands. Later on here in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, Philip we have no evidence, no testimony that Philip laid hands on the Ethiopian eunuch. He got baptized. Uh, nor any of the other converts on the day of Pentecost. How many people got saved on the day of Pentecost? Thousands. We have no record that the apostles had them all line up and laid hands on every one of them so they'd all receive the Holy Spirit. Nor uh, is there any other account where people were laying hands on, 
on, on, on people uh, at their conversion um, in these passages. So, if Acts chapter 8 and this laying on of hands is taken as justification for regarding either confirmation or baptism with the Spirit through the laying on of hands as the second essential stage in becoming a Christian, if that's what, if that's what we're to believe, then I also want to say uh, there are not very many real true Christians around because not very many real Christians have had hands laid on to receive the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Does that make sense? The incident at Samaria, there's a whole different reason for Luke recording it than what is typically believed. The incident at Samaria was not typical. It is atypical. It's not the norm. It is the opposite. And Luke records this event in Samaria because it is not typical. It's the exception, if you will. He wants us to know something very important. He wants to show and demonstrate something very, very important, very critical to the life of the infant church. And I believe it's this. The answer lies, for the whole reason, for this, the record of this Samaritan incident, the answer lies in the history, the ancient history of the split the divide, the schism, if you will, between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, under King David, David united the kingdom. At, at, at the height of David, King David's reign uh, and power, if you will, the kingdom of Israel was at, at the height, at the zenith of its power. Its borders were intact, there was peace in the land. David passed off the scene, passed the kingdom to his son Solomon, you recall? Solomon's reign was glorious, but it began to diminish, and and the kingdom began to be infiltrated by idolatry because of his many wives. When Solomon died, his two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, took over, and they split the kingdom into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, ten tribes set up their own worship, set up their own priesthood, their own sacrificial system, separate from the southern kingdom of Judah, which would worship in Jerusalem at the temple. So now you have the split, Israel split. Samaria would be part of the ten northern tribes and the northern kingdom. And they would never get along. There was constant warfare between them. Well, you just read your Old Testament, the historical books, uh, Kings and Chronicles, and you see uh, that going on. So the Jews now have, would have no dealing whatsoever with the Samaritans. In fact, uh, John records this in a parenthetical statement when he records Jesus' interview with the woman at the well, woman from Samaria. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's scandalous that Jesus would publicly talk to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. And yet here he is. And in that context of that interview, that conversation, John makes this remark. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Because they haven't for centuries. Because of this split. Now, when the Assyrian Empire came in, and God brought the Assyrians in in judgment, 
and carried off the ten northern tribes in captivity and decimated the northern kingdom, there were remnants, Jews, left in that part of the, of the, of the kingdom, and these were the Samaritans. And, and what, the, what the Assyrians would do, they would import other peoples and that they would intermarry with the Samaritans. And so this is where you get this idea that Samaritans weren't really fully Jews, but they were. If the Holy Spirit, now note this, if the Holy Spirit had been given immediately to these Samaritans upon their profession of faith and baptism, this ancient separation between Jewish believers and Samaritan believers would have continued. There would have been two churches. There would have been the northern church and the southern church, just like we have the Eastern Orthodox and the Western church today, which we, we, we have the Roman church and the Eastern church, tragically. So you'd have had that separation. There had to be some event to bring unity and healing to those two people groups. Am I making sense? If you had these two churches, you'd have Christians out of fellowship with each other. Is that something that's characteristic of the church? Let me rephrase. Is that something that should be characteristic of the church? Is that what Jesus intended for the church? No. He says what? Keep the bond of unity. And so right from the very beginning, you have these two people groups who God saves, but he wants to bring them together. This is the reason Luke records this event. Not just to give us a definitive theology on when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you go to Acts chapter 15, what's the, what's the event of Acts chapter 15? Anybody remember? What happens in Acts 15? The Jerusalem Council. Thank you, Faye. It's the account of the Jerusalem Council. And what was the Jerusalem Council all about? It showed how careful the early Christians were to avoid this split between the Jews and the Gentiles. If they convene that council and they reach out to the Gentiles, a la Cornelius, that's why the Cornelius event is recorded, to see if the Gentiles gain entrance now, then don't you think also the same thing would be true between the Jews and the Samaritans? So I, I, I want to suggest that Acts chapter 8 seems to stress that this similar disastrous split would be avoided at Samaria. God did not give his Holy Spirit, he did not give tongues or prophecy to the Samaritans at once. Not until the representatives from Jerusalem came down and expressed their solidarity with the Samaritans. How did Peter and John express their solidarity with the Samaritans? How did they express that solidarity? Laid their hands on them. That's the significance of the laying on of hands. They expressed their solidarity. The laying on of hands in and of itself didn't impart the Holy Spirit. It expressed their solidarity. We're one now. And 
Then they received the Holy Spirit. When it was a clear signal sent that God means for us to be together. Does that, are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? The, John and Peter did not come down simply to authorize the Samaritans. Nor were the Samaritans going to be an extension of the Jerusalem church. We are all one. All one. It is meant to be seen, I believe, as God's divine veto. You know, our, our, our governor and our president have veto power over, over various things, right? I veto that. And I, I think that this, is, this, this whole event is mean to, meant to be seen as God's veto, if you will, uh, on the separation or schism in the infant church. Right from the get-go, no division. And a schism that would have uh, almost assuredly gone on unnoticed. Why? Why would have gone on unnoticed? Because the Jews and the, Samant- and the Samaritans were used to being separate. They were used to justifying their own worship. And if, if you'd had the separation right from the get-go, and the Samaritans had received the Holy Spirit right away without this intervening of, of the Jerusalem uh, uh, believers, then you'd have had simply a curtain dividing them. You'd have the Samaritans on one side and the Jews on the other side. All believers. All believers. But they, they would have found Christ, but they would not have found one another. And that is an ongoing problem in the life of the church, isn't it? It's division, division. The enemy loves to get in and divide and separate. But you see, right from the get-go, Luke means for us to see every succeeding generation of the church that this is not God's will. The church is to be unified. And certainly among people who, who historically, culturally, are separated. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Samaritans. We're to be all one family. And I believe... Now that, that, that this, this event has happened, uh, that's why God made the delay with the Samaritans. That's why the Holy Spirit seemed to come later. There was another reason, and a much more significant reason, than simply you believe, and then later on you get the Holy Spirit. That's not the norm. These are atypical events. Acts chapter 8 is recorded precisely to show the abnormality of a baptism into Christ without or does not include the reception of the Holy Spirit. When you're baptized into Christ, that that reception of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, they go hand in hand. That's the definition of baptism. That's why we studied baptism for as long as we did. Does that make sense? Okay. That's the end of my sermon. I just wanted to cover the Samaritans and give you that insight. Now, next time, next time we're going to look in greater detail at what the New Testament teaches on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay?